Thank you, Beth. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 4, beginning verse 43, as we continue our study in John, and, and in, in one sense come to a, the end of a section. John is broken up into several different sections in, in the approach that John is taking in sharing the gospel of Christ and showing us the, the progression of his ministry and the progression of his, his work in the world. We come to this one today, we come to a somewhat unusual story, a couple of unusual statements within it that he will make, but it comes to a time when a nobleman comes to him, uh, one who is a, probably a, a, an official of Herod just under him, a very wealthy man, no doubt, a very, uh, a very uh, well-known man, and sometimes maybe not so well-known in a popular sort of way among his people. He's a Gentile. And yet he comes to Jesus, and he has some very specific requests of Jesus. If you remember, John is, is using miracles, using signs to show us what he tells us at the end of the book is that, that he's doing this, that we might know that Jesus is the Christ and might believe on him as such. John's gospel in its entirety is a gospel track. It's to help us see that Christ is who he said he was. Christ is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the... As, as the Samaritans said at the end of that last section, he is the Savior of the world, and he is the one who has come and come now to give us life in himself. And that's John's focus. That's John's purpose. From beginning to end, that's what John wants you and me to see as we read and as we study and as we think through this book. Nothing profound beyond that, but there's a lot of profundity in that particular understanding, that particular idea. I want you to hear the word of the Lord, starting in verse 43. He's just finished his ministry at Samaria. He stayed two days there. And those Samaritan men who came out at the bequest of the, of the Samaritan woman have made the statement, Surely we believe ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Then he leaves. It's a good time to leave. The people have come to see many of the people who he is. He's got a contingency there now. And so he leaves Samaria. And after the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Now it seems like there's a contradiction in ver between verse 44 and 45. Jesus says a man is not, without, is not with honor, has no honor in his own country. That means he's not received by his own people. A, man, a prophet, when he goes back to his own country to speak the truth, they don't receive him, they don't hear him. And in the near, very next verse, it says, and he went to Galilee, his country, where he's from, where his birth and, and rearing was, and he went back there and all the people received him. All the Galileans received him. But there's a key here. They don't receive him in his prophetic role. They don't necessarily receive him because of the truth he is speaking. But he says they receive him because of the miracles he did. They received him because they were at the feast in Jerusalem, the feast of the Passover, and they saw the miraculous miracles that he did. Now, I made them a point that John is building his gospel around seven miracles, but those are not the only seven miracles. John chooses them very carefully to show us a dimension of Christ's ministry and to show us a dimension of what the Christian life is all about, what faith is all about. And faith is the real focus of this. And he's saying, listen, they received him, but they received him because they saw the miracles. They liked being wowed. 
They like the excitement of seeing things happen that are out of the ordinary. Seeing this one come in and touch somebody and heal them or speak to someone and they get up off their lame bed or, or, or feed people when they're hungry or, or do things that are just unheard of on a normal course of the day. He said they believed it. They, they came to him. They received him and, and heard him because, man, they liked those miracles. We're a lot like those Galileans, aren't we? And we like excitement. We like a thrill. We like it when something great's going on. We like it when there's a, high, a lot of hype and a lot of, a lot of high energy in something or a, in an event. But, man, when things kind of settle down and the truth starts getting spoken, many times we want to leave that as quick as we can. We want to depart from there. Because, hey, we like the excitement. We like the fun. We like the extraordinary. But, hey, don't speak prophetically. Don't show me needs in my life. Don't point out the sin in my life because, man, that gets, a very, that gets very uncomfortable. That's where the Galileans were. They really liked what he had to say as long as he was doing the miracles. Okay, so much on that. Let's go back to verse 46. That was extra, by the way. That's not in the sermon. Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went down to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, and to the people around, really, because he uses the plural here, he said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. He's kind of chiding the people because they've run out to hear him because they saw what he did in Jerusalem. Unless you see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down. Come to my house. Come to Capernaum before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off back to Capernaum. As he was now going down, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when, it, when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. That is about one o'clock probably in the afternoon. So the father knew that that was the hour at which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole house, his whole household. This again this is, again, a sign, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea and into Galilee. Not the second miracle he performed, not the second wonder that he did, but it's the second sign that John chooses to teach us something significant about the Christian faith. I want you to see this Gentile. I want you to see this man coming from Capernaum. Capernaum was somewhere between 25 and 28 miles from Cana when Jesus got back into Galilee. It was not an easy trip. It was not, a, it was not an easy journey to make, especially if we were on foot. Perhaps the nobleman having horses and chariots at his disposal made it quicker because he took the animals and came. But, but it, was, it took an effort. It took some time. And, and this man knew that he had heard things about Jesus that were significant surrounding sick people. His son lay dying. His son had a fever. His son was very ill. And, and he said, listen, I want to go down. I, I want to go down and see if I can get this Jesus who maybe in his own eyes at this point was nothing more than a, than a magician. 
maybe just somebody who could do some, some real tricks in people's presence. If he would just come down here and just touch my son, I know my son would be able to live. And so he made the journey down to Capernaum. I want you to see something significant about him. This man was in pain. This man was hurting. This man was at the point of grief because he knew that his son was very, very ill. There, there's something about grief, there's something about sorrow that drives us toward the Savior. There, there's something about being in a difficult time in life, whether it's physical or whether it's spiritual or whether it's emotional, that tends to push us toward Christ if we have any spiritual sensitivities at all. I, we all awoke on Friday morning to, to news out of, out of Colorado, out of Aurora, Colorado, of a, of a, of a senseless act of, of uh, killing people in a movie theater who'd gone there to see a movie. I mean, we, we just saw, we, we saw the newsreels. I was actually determined not to turn the TV on on Friday and was sitting there reading something, and somebody said something about, uh, I saw a headline from ABC News that said, gunman may be a Tea Party member. And I said, what gunman? What are they talking about? So I broke my vow Friday morning and turned on the TV and could not hardly turn it off the rest of the day. There's something about sorrow, there's something about grief, there's something about pain that drives us toward the Savior. Now, if you have no spiritual sensitivity at all, if you have no understanding of what the gospel is all about, it kind of repulses you. A friend of mine from Florida sent me a, a blog link yesterday from a lady who was in Aurora, Colorado, who was in that theater, in that very theater, five rows back from where the gunman was shooting. And the title of her blog article was, So Now Do You Still Think God is Gracious? That'll get your attention. And, and I, I knew the guy that sent it to me was a, he's the editor of the, of the Baptist paper in Florida, so I knew it had to have something to it more than just the title. And so I read the blog article, and the woman's basic thesis was, yes, I still know that God is gracious. I still know that my Savior lives. I still know that, that there's a reason why this happened. There's a reason why I was delivered from it. I can't understand why the person on my left and the person on my right died and, and others around me died. But I know that God is gracious and delivered me, not because I'm a good person, not because I'm better than those people were, but God has a purpose in bringing me out of this. Yes, God is gracious. And maybe, she said, that graciousness is so that I can come out and tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ and you can come to faith in Him. I thought it was a great perspective on a horrible, horrible situation. I've got a feeling this nobleman had about the same feeling that some of those people in Aurora had on Friday morning, Thursday night and Friday morning after that tragedy. Here's his son whom he loves very dearly, and he's sick. And he says, listen, I've heard about Jesus, and I'm going to go down there, and I'm going to find him, and we're going to see what he can do. I believe if he'll just come back here with me, 25, 28 miles back to my home, I, if I can just get him to come to Capernaum, he will see something great happen with my son. I really don't think the nobleman had a great faith in Christ uh, salvifically at this point. I think he only had one thing in mind. I want to see my son better. I want to see my son healed, and I want to do anything I can to make that happen. And so he came. And he came to Jesus. The word that uses here in verse 47 is he, he was imploring him. He was begging him. He was pleading with him. He was, he was agonizing with him, please come and heal my son. Come down with me to my home and heal my son. And Jesus wouldn't go. He said, no, 
No, I've got things to do here in, in, in Cana. I've come back to Cana now, and I've, I'm here. I, I'm not going to go with you. You know, one of the things I think, just a little aside here, that teaches us about it that we need to learn today is that Christ will do some great things in your life, some great miracles in your life, but He'll always do them on His terms. He doesn't do them on our terms. You know, we're always quick to run to God and say, God, if you'll just do this, Lord, if you'll just do this for me right now because I'm hurting or I'm in pain, Lord, if you'll do that, I'll, I'll do whatever you ask of me. If you'll do it this way, and when God chooses to do it another way, in His timing, in His method, we, we tend to say, well, He didn't answer my prayer. He didn't do what I asked of Him. He didn't do what I literally demanded of Him. And, and here I am, just floundering in my own struggles. But all along, Jesus wants us to see that we don't call the shots, He does. He makes the plans. He makes the purpose. He does what he does in his way. So, so he comes to Jesus. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do it. And Jesus takes that moment just to kind of chide the people to say, you know, you people, you guys, you've, you've seen me do signs and you've seen me do wonders and you, you think those are all great. And that's what your belief is based on. That's what your faith is based on. And that Jesus is showing them is a very, very shallow faith. You know, do you have to have excitement to believe? Do you have to say, oh, everything has to be exactly like I want it, and then I'll trust Christ, then I'll believe Christ, then I'll, then I'll lean not on my own understanding as long as my understanding is determining what He is doing, am I going to follow Him? I, that's not real faith. It's not real faith. I think we struggle in our day with with what real faith is. And I think Jesus is kind of dealing with that. I think that's why John chose this sign about faith to help us get a better understanding of it. You know, there's several things here that we can see. One is uh, in this lesson about the meaning of faith. One thing John has been showing us, chapters 1 through 4 all along, is that there is the crucialness of faith for salvation. Faith has to be there. Now, a lot of us have a view of faith that it's kind of a blind leap. You know, we, we, you've heard people say, maybe you've said it yourself. You know, I, I can't understand this. I'll never understand this. I'll, I'll just, I, I can't figure it out, so I'll just have to trust. I'll just have to have faith. There, there's some truth in that, but there's, there's also a, a dangerous idea there. And the dangerous idea is this thought that, well, you know, faith has no rationality to it. Faith is just sort of blindly entering into something. And so I I turn off my thinking, I turn off my understanding, and I just go into it blindly. That's not what faith is. Faith involves not just your feelings, not just your emotions. Faith involves your intellect. Faith involves your will. Faith involves seeing who Christ is and saying, I will trust him no matter what the circumstances are because I know he is a truth teller. I know that the basis of my faith is based on his truth, his word, not my own. And that's what this, that's what this nobleman is beginning to find out. There's a cruciality of faith. There's a crucialness of faith for real salvation to, to become a reality in a person's life. There's also the nature of faith that he deals with here. And Jesus is very quickly exposing the limits of faith that is based on merely signs and miracles. Something that we want, something that we desire, 
But Jesus very quickly says, I'm not committing myself to those who respond to me on that level. That's basically what he's saying in verse 48. Unless you see my signs and wonders, you won't believe. And, and, and I'm just not going to commit myself to you on that. He, he said much the same thing uh, back in chapter 2 in verse 23 when he was speaking about it. He said now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, this is when he did some signs and wonders during the feast, they believe, many believed his name observing the signs which he was doing. Again, shallow faith. They see him doing something miraculous and they say, oh, I want to believe in this. Give me another miracle. And then Jesus goes on to say, or 24, John says, But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. They were saying, oh, we're believing in you. We believe in you because of these signs. Keep doing them, and we'll keep believing. Jesus said, I know their heart. Their heart is not that they're believing in me. Their heart is not that they're trusting in me as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the one who really brings life. They're just trusting because they see all these great miracles going on. And Jesus said, I'm, John says he's, he didn't entrust himself to them. It's much like what John said in his little epistle in, in 1 John, when, when you remember that uh, the, the people had come to the church, they become a part of the church, and, and, and then they left. And the people were saying, John, where did, why did they leave? I mean, do they not like us anymore? Do they not, do they not, uh, why did they leave our church? John said, don't, don't grieve over that. He said, they went out from us because they never really were of us. They had a sign faith. They had a, a faith that was shallow and superficial based on what they could get, what they could draw from it. And when they were no longer able to draw from it, they left and went after something else. And John said, the reason they did that is because they had a, 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 what the old Puritans called a spurious faith, a false faith. It wasn't a genuine faith. They went out because they never really were of us. Listen, as you think about faith, the thing I would say to you this morning is you ought to be examining your own heart. Is my faith in what Christ can do for me, or is my faith in Christ? There's a grave difference in those two things, and this nobleman is finding that out. He came down with a faith in the miracles. And he said, I know that you can do this. I've seen, I've heard, I've, I've heard rumors about all you can do. And, and he said, sir, come with me before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. In other words, I'm not going back to Capernaum, but your son's alive. He's going to be fine. Now, now the, the nobleman found himself with a dilemma here. He's come all this way for one reason, to get Jesus to go back and touch his son and bring healing. It's the only reason he came. No other reason at all. And Jesus refusing to do so, but he said with his mouth, with his words, he said, go and your son is going to live. At that point, he had to decide, am I going to believe his words? And it says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he started off. It's a little better faith than just believing in signs. It's a little deeper understanding to say, I believe what you say is true, Lord. I, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't compute with what, my, with what my worldview is. It doesn't compute with how I have lived life and what I have depended on and what I have looked to all this time. It, it really doesn't compute to all that. But if you say it's true, then I'm going to believe your word and I'm going to go back home. 
That's exactly what he did. Started back on the journey. As he's on his journey back, his servants come to him. And his servants say, your son is healed. The the fever is gone. He's no longer in his deathbed. And the man says, when did that happen? So it happened at seventh hour yesterday. They kind of measure the hours of the day from sunup and sunup being around 6 o'clock roughly. And and they said, uh, it happened in the seventh hour, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And the man immediately thought, that's when Jesus told me he lives. That's when he spoke just words. He didn't do an incantation. He didn't do some kind of hocus-pocus move. He didn't say, oh, blah, blah, blah. He didn't do anything. He just said, your son's okay. Go. And he went. All of a sudden, the nature of faith in this man had gone from believing because he saw and heard about some miracles to hearing the word of Christ and saying, you know, there's something about the way he speaks. There's something about the truth he proclaims. He says he's okay. I'm going to believe his words. But then it says that when he got home, after he saw that and he heard that his son lives, it says he himself believed, had faith, Trusted, not in the miracles, not in the signs, not just in some words spoken, but he believed in the one who had spoken those words. He believed it to be the truth, and he acted on it, and he believed, like those Sumerian men did, that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the Savior of the world. And and his whole household did. He became immediately an evangelist. He became immediately a missionary. Not in some foreign country, not even in the next town over. He became a missionary where we all need to begin our missionary work, and that is in his home. Your son lives. He went back. He told his household. Let me tell you what this man, Jesus, who who is unlike any man I've ever met, who I went thinking he could come down here and heal him. Let me tell you what he did. Let me tell you what he said. Let me tell you what happened when I, I believe this man is the Son of God. I believe he's the Savior of the world. And his household. Household there probably means his immediate family, his servants, because we know he had servants, those within his serv- in his house that, that worked there and served him. His whole household believed, not because of signs, but because this man had met the Savior, and this man came back and told them the truth. Faith is based on signs and miracles must not be mistaken for true faith. Because true faith, true faith honors God. It glorifies Christ. It points to Him. Faith is just on what can you give me, what can you do for me, how can I get something. does just the opposite. Gives me glory. Gives, gives me a tingle, an excitement. John is showing us here that our faith, when when rightly exercised, when our faith, when rightly understood, and when our faith is in the proper object, miracles are not the object. Blessings are not the object. The object is our faith in Christ. When our faith is in the right object, Jesus Christ alone, 
then it changes our heart, it changes our life, and we become, a, as we talked about last week, a good newser. One who shares that good news, not because we've been trained in a class, not because we've been given some kind of special organization to do it through, but we do it because we've met the Savior, and there's a reality in our life, and there's a reality in our heart, and we cannot help but speak that. We cannot help but share that. We cannot help but tell others about it. But I want you to see something about prayer in, this verse, in these verses, too. The nature of faith is important, and we realize that suffering draws us to faith. Pain draws us closer to faith and gives us a, a greater understanding of our need for some kind of a work of Christ within our life. That's very important. But I want you to say something here also about the nature of prayer. You may say, wait a minute, Jesus doesn't mention prayer here. No. Nobody says they're praying here. No. But I want you to see there is a prayer here just the same in verse 49. The royal official said to him, that is to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. That's a prayer, the only one who can answer prayer. That's an expression of dependency upon, upon Christ that, that had not be, been seen very far by anybody until this point. Lord, just come down. Sir, if you'll come down, I know my child will live. His anxiety, his fear, his sadness drove him to this place to call out to Christ and express his greatest need to him. You know, I know we live in a day that like to talk about sadness in church. Happy church is the mood of the day. Don't, don't talk about sin. Don't talk about sadness. Don't talk about pain. We don't want that. We want a Christ who gives us happiness and health and everything else. I saw a sign this week. Somebody sent it to me on a text. It was a picture that said, basically, faithfulness is believing God to make your life easier. That's contemporary Christianity in a nutshell. I mean, just make it easier for me, Lord. Just make it happier for me. Just, just make it some way that I can feel better about myself and feel better about the world. But man, let me tell you something, this man was hurting. I love to read the books of Michael Card and listen to some of his music. And I was listening to some this week. And, and, and Michael Card talks about, he's got a new album, or a fairly new album called the, the Hidden Face of God. And that's all about lament. It's all about sadness. It's all about seeking Christ when things are not everything we want them to be. And, and, and expresses that God's faithfulness is not to make everything perfect, not to make even, everything even better than we think, as we think it ought to be, but God's faithfulness is that He's with us in the midst of the struggle. And that struggle drives us to Him. When things are going great in our life, we tend to say, hey, we're doing all right. Don't you? I'll be honest. Just be honest with yourself for a minute. You don't, have to, don't have to raise your hand. I'm going to ask you to confess anything publicly here. But just talk to yourself a minute. Isn't it a reality that really when, when things are going great, 
When everything's going like you think they ought to be going, you think, man, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing all right in the Christian life. I'm going to church. I'm doing everything right. No sweat. I'm doing all right. And then when things take a turn to the negative, when there's a sickness or when there's a hurt with a family member that you think is just totally unjust, or when there's an aurora Colorado and you say, oh, man, this is not good. Where is God in all this? Same place he's always been. And, and those, those times, if we're really a believer, if, we're really a, if we've really trusted Christ, not just the blessings, but we've really trusted Christ, then we find ourselves being driven to our knees and driven into his presence, seeking the hidden face of God and, and seeking what one of the Puritan writers called you know, a, a dark providence. Why is God sending a dark providence? Why is he letting this happen? Well, go ask him. Don't just pity yourself. A real believer will go to him and say, Lord, I want to walk with you even in the dark times. I want to walk. I want you to walk me through this. I need you. I don't just need your blessings. I don't just need your miracles. I don't just need what you have to to offer, but I, I need you in the midst of this. This prayer that this nobleman offered, sir, go with me. And my, son, my son's dying. Go down there before he dies. Shows a real practicality of prayer. We, we are allowed to pray about just the practical, mundane things of life. But again, our prayer in facing crisis it, it, anywhere in our life we need to learn to bring that crisis to Christ, not muddle about it in our own life. Finally, I think the thing we need to understand here is this paragraph points to one thing in prayer, one thing in faith. The whole essence of faith, the whole nature of faith, the whole essence of prayer, the whole nature of prayer points to Christ himself. There's no generalities there. It's a specificity. It's not just a general prayer of, oh, my, help me. It's, it's Christ, you are my hope. Christ, you are my life. Your grace is sufficient even at a distance. Your, your grace is sufficient even nearby. Lord, help me not seek myself. Help me not seek my own pleasure. Help me not seek to just be somehow relieved. Help me, O oh Lord, to seek you. To seek your face, hidden as it may seem. To seek you and to seek your face that you might be glorified. Christ was glorified in this nobleman's household. Because he went back and he said, let me tell you. Let me tell you about Jesus of Nazareth. Let me tell you about the one who, who says he is the Christ. Let me tell you about this one and all that he has revealed and all that he has shown. And, and, but I want you to understand, it's not just because my son lives. It's because of who he is that I put my trust in him, that I believed him. And then he changes our life. We're going to sing a hymn of commitment in a minute that's an old, familiar one. Just as I am. We haven't sung that in a while. And 
We don't sing it a lot because that song is many times misunderstood. I, I talked to somebody the other day who, who was talking about his life and that he was a believer, and I said, well, tell me about your life. He said, well, I'm not going to church now. I don't, you know, I got this little problem with drugs on the side, and I'm sleeping with somebody that's not my wife. Matter of fact, I've divorced my wife. I'm living with somebody else now, and, but I've been saved. I said, really? He said, I'm saved in the Baptist church. I said, you're probably saved by the Baptist church, not by Christ, but that's a whole other story. I said, well, tell me about that. How do you reconcile that? He said, oh, Jesus accepts me just as I am. We always sang that at my church. It was always my favorite song because I just come and say, here I am, and Jesus has to accept me. That's not what that song means, folks. Yes, you come just as you are. You don't clean it up. You don't say, boy, I'll get better, and then I'll come to Christ. You come just as you are. But let me tell you something. If you, like this nobleman, come to Christ, not to the Baptist church, not to a preacher, not to some kind of organization, but if you come to Jesus Christ and, and to Jesus Christ alone and you know God's grace and you put faith in Christ, I want you to know something. You may come just as you are, but you do not stay just as you are. That's important to understand. This nobleman went back, and I guarantee you this nobleman had never told anybody about Christ until he met Christ face to face and put his faith in him. And when you come to Christ, there is a new creature, Paul says. All old things are passed away and everything's become new. Your, your heart has changed, your life has changed, your desires have changed, your motives have changed. You are a changed new creation. You say, well, thank you very much, but I'd just soon stay the way I was before I came. Then you never came. That's not Bill Haynes. That's, that's Bible. That's the Word of God. It's not a legalism. It's not, okay, now I've got to stop. Now I've got oh, to work this out. I've got to make this. No, it's a change of nature. And God deals with what needs to be sorted out by His Holy Spirit and by His grace. Come just as you are. But when you come to Christ, you leave differently. And you keep coming. And he keeps changing you. Those words of John Newton, I am not what I used to be, but by God's grace, I am not what I will be. There's a growth. There's a, there's a change. There's a sanctification that takes place. I invite you to Christ if you don't know Christ. Maybe you've been in a church all your life. Maybe you've played religion all your life. Religion doesn't change anything. Religion just gets really miserable. I know. Christ never gets miserable. So I invite you not to a church, not to, not to a preacher for sure, but to Christ. This church will let you down. This preacher will let you down. I can guarantee it, 100%. Christ will never let you down when you believe his word and put your trust in him. Let's pray. And Father, it is mm, so glorious to think about faith, about this developing faith, this growing faith in this nobleman. And Lord, to think about the application to our own life. 
Father, this is for us because it points to Christ. It, it, it reveals His glory. And it honors Him in everything we do. Father, I pray for men and women who are sitting here this morning who've never come face to face with Christ. Perhaps they've never been in church. Perhaps Lord, they've been in church and they've just kind of enjoyed the common grace of maybe feeling good about it and about themselves. They've never, they've never committed themselves to Christ alone. Father, I pray you draw them to yourself. I pray your Holy Spirit would move in a powerful way, in, a, in, a, in an overpowering way. Break our wills. Break our sin. And bring us to true faith in Christ. Father, our trust is in you alone. We desire, O oh Lord, to glorify you alone in your cross not about us, it's about you. It's not about asking ourselves what would Jesus do, but it's about evaluating and knowing what you have done and placing our faith in that. Father, change us from old creatures to new creatures. Cleanse us, O oh Lord, and make us whole. We pray in Jesus' name.